910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Be sure to check out our other resources, including blogs, posts, and our two award-winning books, No Half Truths Allowed and The Bible Blueprint. You can find everything on our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com, including information on our new book, The Final Exodus, Deciphering the Book of Revelation, due out September 1st. You can even contact us straight from the website if you have any questions, comments, or would like to inquire about us speaking at your next women's event. And be sure to follow us on all social media outlets. Welcome back. In the last episode, we laid out the truths about the doctrine of election, starting with Paul's description of the fallen state of mankind, which is the root of all of man's troubles. Our problem can't be fixed by a pill. We're not saying that medicine is bad. It's definitely not bad. But it can't be fixed by a pill. It can't be fixed by legislating morality. It can't be fixed through education, by looking inward, or by anything else. Our problem is a spiritual problem. Every human being since Adam and Eve, except for Jesus, of course, is born separated from God by sin. It is a spiritual problem, and it doesn't just leave us sick and in need of a little medical care. We don't have an island of grace in us that's good and can help draw us to God, and we aren't born in a morally neutral position where we can choose to be either morally good or morally bad. As if in some way we could, by sheer will, be pleasing to God. If any of these things were true, we might be able to do what Catholic mystic Richard Rohr does when he wants to draw closer to God. In his words, he doesn't need Christ's sacrificial death on the cross to know God. To draw closer to God, he believes in suffering by learning to be more humble. His answer is to pray for one humiliation a day, and that doesn't have to be a major humiliation. Mr. Rohr calls himself a Christian, which is kind of ironic because none of that is even close to Christianity. We're never going to have our broken relationship with God fixed this way. Maybe they have a little calendar, you know, humiliation of the day calendar. I wonder how many little ones equal a big one. It doesn't have to be a big one. Just I want to see the chart. A little bit like, of humiliation. You know, where's the chart on this? <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, we can make one up. That's probably what he did. Uh, probably. Oh, it's just crazy. I, these things drive me insane when yeah. these people think this stuff is real. That's a false religion. That is just as false as Buddhism or Hinduism or Mormonism or any of the rest of them. As Paul definitively told us in the first five verses of Ephesians chapter two that we looked at last week, the problem with all humanity is that our inborn sin nature makes us hostile to God at enmity with him, which means we're his enemy. And it leaves us so enslaved to our sin that we're spiritually dead. And since that's what the Bible teaches in scripture after scripture after scripture, There's no way that any of those other answers are any kind of true answer at all. Dead men need to be brought back to life. And for God's elect, that's exactly what he does for us. In today's text, we're going to see that Paul expands on the idea that our salvation is a monergistic work, meaning the work of one, obviously God. So why does God do all the work of salvation himself and not leave some of it up to us? Well, 
It's because he's sovereign and it satisfied his goodwill and pleasure to elect a remnant of people by his own sovereign choice. Remember, he created us. He could do whatever he wants. He did it for his glory, something that God never shares with anyone else. But don't get this wrong. It's not like God is cold and glory hungry and he elected us to salvation just to get glory. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Our God loved us before the foundation of the world, a love that's so great that he rescued us when we were his enemies. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you said that. So let's start today by reading Ephesians 2, 6 through 10. And I'll start with those verses here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So not only have we been saved by grace, verse six tells us that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This verse about being raised with Christ and seated with him isn't easy to understand at first glance. So let's look at some more verses that tell us the same thing. Colossians 3, 1 to 4, another letter from Paul. And this is the amplified version, and it makes it a little clear. It says, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ to a new life, sharing in his resurrection from the dead, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind and keep focused habitually on the things above, the heavenly things not on things that are on the earth, which have only temporal value. For you died to this world and your new real life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And this is echoed in Colossians 2, 12 to 13 and verses 20, Romans 6, 4 to 5, Romans 9 to 11. Yeah, now, notice there are three things that we see in this one verse, and all the verbs in it are past tense. That means they are realities for us right now, even though they're not fully realized realities yet. The first thing we see is we've been raised with Christ. So how does that work when our physical bodies are still here on earth? Well, what Paul is talking about here is that we've been raised from death to life, just like Jesus was. We were dead. Now we're alive. And this new life that we've been given is a changed life. We've been born again, made new creatures, as the Colossians 3 verses we just read says. The Colossians passage goes on to tell us what that new life should look like, a life that's seeking things that are above. We should be people who are heavenly minded. We talked about our prayers and, you know, our thanking being heavenly minded. Matthew 6, 33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says this to his disciples after telling them not to worry about what they're going to wear and what they're going to eat. 
he says those things are things the Gentiles, meaning the unsaved at that time, go after. And this doesn't mean that we don't have to go to work. It doesn't mean that if we stay home and pray all day or work for Jesus all day, he'll just bring the money in to pay our bills, buy us clothes and food. It doesn't work that way. What it does mean is that we're not supposed to get caught up in the things that the world chases after and certainly not supposed to be anxious about those things. It also doesn't mean that if we're serving God with our lives, that we won't experience problems in life. We can all attest that that's not true. Jesus doesn't promise us a rose garden. In fact, a lot of times our new life creates more problems for us than our old life did. It certainly does. I just heard a few people this past week, just this past week, say that they're struggling as new Christians because their old friends and even their family don't want much at all, if anything, to do with them. And I've also heard the flip side of that, that their family and their old friends are still friends, want to hang out with them, but they really don't want to because their friends want them to plunge right back into the sinful behavior that they were doing before. So those people have a choice to make. And it's hard because we're talking about friends and family, a lot of times really close people to us. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, those people are never going to understand unless they're saved what it's like or why we don't want to do those things anymore. They can't possibly understand that. That's right. And not only that, Hebrews 12, 7 tells us it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, obviously that goes for God's daughters too. He's refining our faith by disciplining us, refining us like gold, as it says. But it's not easy for us. And let's not forget to mention our enemy, Satan, and his demons. Satan didn't have a care in the world about us when we were running headlong into sin with the world. But we're on his radar now because we belong to Jesus, and he hates Jesus. And he's a formidable enemy. It's not like people think you can just denounce him and he goes away. It doesn't work like that. And we're going to talk more about this in a later episode in this series. Yes, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and Satan, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to do. No, it certainly doesn't. So we're raised to new life. And the second thing that we see from verse six is that we're not just raised with Christ, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And we'll get to the heavenly realms in a minute. But first, we have to talk about the fact that Jesus is seated and we are too. Jesus finished his salvific work here on earth, ascended back to heaven and took a seat. That was something that the priests who were serving at the temple were never able to do. Temple work was never finished. Someone had to be on it at all times, according to Hebrews 10, 11, which says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's the end of it. Jesus is seated because the work is done. And we're seated with him because our work is done. He did it for us, all of it. There's no work that we could possibly do to add to our salvation and none that we have to do to earn it or to keep it. We don't have to do anything to earn our salvation any further. We don't have to do anything further to keep our salvation. Nor is there anything we can do to lose it. Absolutely. 
we're already seated in heaven with Christ. That's what that portion of scripture means. We wouldn't be there if there was more that we had to do here on earth. And when you understand this passage and think about those who try to add some type of works to salvation that's already been earned by Christ, you can understand why Paul rails against them who teach this kind of heresy to others. He was passionate about it, so much so that he tells the Galatian believers who were starting to believe that they needed to be circumcised to be saved because that's what they were told. They had to convert to Judaism and then get circumcised and then they could be saved. He says to them, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law because they were going to be Jewish. You were severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And that's Galatians 5, 2 to 4. These are pretty strong words for anyone who teaches a salvation of Christ plus something else. It's absolute heresy. It absolutely is. Christ came to set us free from being slaves to sin, but also to have freedom from trying to save ourselves. That's part of the bondage that the world is still under. The unbelievers know about God, both from nature and from their conscience. They live under condemnation. And whether they act like it or not, at least to some degree, they feel that. And they're searching. They search other religions. They search within themselves. They're chasing one new experience after another. They're doing everything they can to stay healthy. They're doing everything they can to stay alive because they know that death is coming. It comes to everybody. And whether they realize it or not, in some way, they're either trying to save themselves from it or they're doing things to avoid thinking about needing to. And it's an empty, hollow place to be. Yeah, it certainly is. Freedom in Christ is the only real freedom that there is. We're seated with him in heaven because the work was finished by him for us. And it's complete. That's why he's sitting down. Like you said, we've already been brought from death to life. The nanosecond a Christian dies, they're with Jesus in heaven, their soul for now. There's no worry about it. There's nothing to con- get concerned about. Philippians 1.21 says to live as Christ to die is gain. We enjoy doing Christ's work while we're alive on earth, or we enjoy the fullness of being where he is. That's why we can rest. Like we said in a previous episode, it's a win-win for us. It is win-win for us. There's one more aspect of verse six that's an already reality for us, although it's not quite a full reality yet. God has raised us up and he seated us in the heavenly places. So let's talk about the heavenly places a little bit. And we're going to talk about this more in later episodes. Our bodies are here on earth, but this is not our home. Christians do not have a dual citizenship here and there. Our permanent home is with Christ. In Philippians 3, 17 to 21, Paul says, join one another in following my example, brothers, and carefully observe those who walk according to the pattern we set for you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Our home is in heaven. And we're to think of ourselves as sojourners and aliens here on earth and live like that. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't be patriotic. Doesn't mean we shouldn't love our country and want the best for it and protest against things that are bad and try to build it up and support it. Doesn't mean anything like that. What it means is that we're thinking bigger. We're eternally minded, knowing that we're here just for a little while before going to our permanent home in heaven. The heavenly realm is the unseen world of spiritual reality. We know from chapter one, verse three, that God has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that's in the heavenly places. We know from chapter one, verses 20 to 21, that it's where Jesus is ruling and reigning far above all rule and authority and power. We also know it's where the church wages spiritual warfare. Yeah. Like we've mentioned already in this series and many other times, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us is what gives us our power to persevere, to not sin, to hold fast to our confession until the end, no matter what trials or what kind of persecution comes. That's our spiritual warfare. It's not fighting on the last day with a sword dressed like Xena, the warrior princess or something. And I'm sorry to you people who make those memes that try to show that. If we did not have the power from above as a reality now, we couldn't do it. We could not do it. We would fail miserably. And when we do sin, he also gives us the power to confidently come before God in repentance, in faith, that we will be forgiven. That's right. And amen to that. We're told in verse seven why God has done all this for his elect. And I'm going to quote scripture. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Then the scripture. These riches of his grace are lavished on believers, according to Ephesians 1.8. God's grace to us will never run out. He's going to keep showering his church with all of the wonders of the undeserved favor he's given us because of his kindness for a purpose to showcase his glory. Right. We covered the immense subject of the doctrine of election in the last episode, like we said. It's very important to grasp that our salvation is God's work alone. We cannot take any of the glory for it. And we want to reiterate that our earthly decision is important. The two do not negate each other, no matter how much people want to argue about it. They don't negate each other. God's electing and our human responsibility of deciding aren't in competition with each other, even though it's totally true that we wouldn't have decided if God hadn't first regenerated our hearts. But because that's the way it is, he gets all the glory for our salvation. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other. And that's a verse that follows right on the heels of seven verses that are talking about God's work of redemption. Getting back to why God does it. And we're going to delve more into this in chapter three. God's redemption of us shows the world, both this world and the heavenly realms, like the demons and Satan and the, and the angels that are with God. It shows them his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his love, his omnipotence, his faithfulness, 
And we could probably come up with even more of God's attributes that are showcased in our salvation for his glory. You know, that's our overall, our overarching purpose in life to glorify God. He's showing everyone everywhere just how glorious he is by saving us. In Romans 9, Paul lays out the same argument, talking about Jacob and Esau and then something about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Romans 9, 19 to 24 says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make the same lump of clay, one vessel for special occasions and another one for common use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. It's the end of scripture. God shows his glory through his mercy and kindness to undeserving sinners like us. God shows his glory through his patience with the wicked, and he'll show his glory through the attributes of justice and righteousness when they're dealt with by him. Yeah, and it sounds harsh, but this is God showing just how glorious he is. And these words echo God showing his glory to Moses in Exodus 33. Not only did God show Moses his glory with light that was so brilliant that his face glowed even after he came down from the mountain. According to Exodus 34, God proclaimed his glory saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. We've been given so great a salvation to show the world how great and glorious God is. When we glorify God, we get something too. We experience joy because we get God as our inheritance. Pretty good inheritance. Yeah. New England Puritan Jonathan Edwards, he got this. And he says, here's his quote, the redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels and will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels or each other or in anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. That, that is a great quote. Yeah. It really, really is a great quote. Really sums it up. And it really does. And that's the point of Psalm 37, 4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I get so tired of seeing that as an earthly thing. I, I'm tired of hearing people say, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you that job that you love or you'll 
that's not it. And I just get so tired of it, Rose. And I know you do too. It's not our earthly desires that he's talking about in this verse. Although he may give you some of them, he may give you a lot of them too. The thing he's talking about is himself. He gives us himself, all those attributes that he is. And when we say is that there's a word for that, it's divine simplicity. God, he doesn't just act merciful. God is mercy. He is merciful. He is all of those things, light, love, mercy, kindness, and all the rest. If we delight in him, that's what we get. That's right. And that's so much more than our earthly desires anyway. Like we said, our spiritual desires are all taken care of. So Chris, let's wrap up this section with Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10. Here's the verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the end of scripture. Our works don't save us in any way, shape, or form. Not at all. But God did create us to do good works. And not only that, he prepared those good works in advance for us to walk in them. Does that sound like a God who's in heaven wringing his hands, hoping someone will pick him, hoping someone will respond to an altar call, hoping for us to say yes to his invitation and his wooing? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. Because that's not how it is. It isn't that any more than Israel was plan A and that failed. So the Gentile church was given a chance with Jesus dying on the cross as plan B. The plan from before the foundation of the world has always been God the Father choosing a remnant to save, Jesus securing their salvation for them, and the Holy Spirit applying the work of that salvation to them. That's always been the plan. So now that we know that, let's continue reading verses 11 through 12, and I'll read them. It says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. An overarching theme of Ephesians is that Christ has not only reconciled all creation to himself, he's also reconciled people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself, and each other in the church. Gentile believers were the uncircumcised. Their actual bodily foreskin flesh was still intact. They were derisively called uncircumcised by the Jews, who, according to the law, had all their male babies circumcised at eight days old, which is taking the foreskin off. If you think back to the Old Testament, all males, even adults, who came under the covenant with the Israelites had to be circumcised showing they were part of God's set-apart people. The Jews, what is called the circumcision, looked down on the Gentiles because they were outside of the covenant of God. If a Jew married a Gentile, they were considered dead by their friends and family. Jews wouldn't help a Gentile mother give birth because it was helping bring another Gentile into the world. That's how bad the division was. And these people are now coming together under Christ. That's why there's a lot of friction. Jews were called the circumcision, 
But notice that Paul follows those words in verse 11 with these words, which is made in the flesh by hands. I think he's got a message here. He certainly does. He's reminding the Ephesian church that human circumcision of the flesh made by hands means nothing in regard to salvation. True circumcision is circumcision of the heart. And that was true not only in New Testament times, but in Old Testament times, because Jeremiah 4.4 says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And that's the end of the scripture. That echoes Deuteronomy 10, 16, Colossians 2, 11, and many other scriptures. Human works of any kind have no saving power. Salvation was always and still is about having a heart that's regenerated by the Holy Spirit and either looking forward, having faith in God's promise, or looking back to the promise being fulfilled in Jesus's death. Like we said, this flies totally in the face of any kind of dispensational Bible teaching with having God have different dispensations, plan A, plan B throughout history. That's just unbiblical. That's right. In verse 12, Paul's reminding them that Gentiles were once separated from Christ and the covenants. Except for a few exceptions, the Gentiles weren't part of ancient Israel or the Abrahamic, Mosaic, or Davidic covenants that God made with them. Salvation is from the Jews, according to John 4.22. The whole Old Testament taught about salvation through a Jewish Messiah that would be coming. The Gentiles were effectively without hope. They were far off. But leaving them there was never God's ultimate plan. They're often referenced in the Old Testament as being part of the plan of salvation in the future. Right. And I'll continue reading Ephesians 2, 13 to 16. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And that's the end of the scripture. You know, people were divided into two groups, Jews and Gentiles, or sometimes they said Jews and Greeks. The wall of hostility that Christ broke down might be illustrated by the wall between the inner and outer courts of the temple. But the Mosaic law, in many ways, was the dividing wall because it set Israel apart from every other nation. Yeah. Jesus fulfilled the whole law, not only by willingly going to the cross, taking the penalty we owed because of our sin, something we call Christ's passive obedience. But there's more. Christ also fulfilled the whole law by living in the perfect, full obedience to every dot and tittle required by the law. That's something we call his active obedience. Both are imputed to us. We've used the phrase for justification, being made right with God, justified never sin. It's just kind of a way to memorize what justification means, but it doesn't tell the whole picture. Just being cleaned up from the sin we've got doesn't totally cut it. God requires not only an absence of sin, he requires we possess righteousness. If we belong to Jesus, we're not only cleaned up, 
we're given his spotless robe of righteousness as if it were our very own. It's that perfect fulfillment of the law that Christ provides for us that gives us peace with God and unites the Jews and other nations. Now, through Jesus, there is one new group of people, the church, Big C Church, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. It's alluding to Isaiah 57, 19. Peace is now proclaimed to you who were far away and to those who were near. Both Jew and Gentile believers have access to God the Father through the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done for us. Every benefit we've covered in this last section of chapter two from verses 11 on, Gentiles being brought near, the wall of hostility coming down, being reconciled to God, having peace between us and him, and peace being made possible between all believers of every nation, and having access to the Father through the Spirit. All of it is ours only because of God's electing love, bringing us such a great salvation. Nothing we've done. That. Yep. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 ends this chapter telling us, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Paul's telling Jews and Gentiles, they are no longer strangers to each other. Doesn't matter whose country they were in. These believers weren't aliens to each other anymore no matter where they roamed. They're all citizens of heaven and members of God's household. They're brothers and sisters. And it's the same for us today. We brothers and sisters who are citizens of the kingdom ruled by the King of Kings. And it's the peace brought by Jesus that allows us to live that way. Our foundation is the word. The truth of God spoken by the prophets and then the apostles. Rose, I am sure you see the resemblance of these last verses with another book of the Bible. Chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. I'm sure that's what you're talking about. Yep. It says these very things. The bride of Christ is the church. She's the dwelling place of God, the new Jerusalem. And she's built just like these last verses say, with Christ as the cornerstone, the one stone in the building that assures stability and perfection. You get the cornerstone wrong, the rest of the building, not going to hold up. It sure is not. It's going to fall when the waves come. So what else do these last verses mean to us? There are no new foundations being laid. There are no new prophets or apostles, regardless of what people want to call themselves today. No one is proclaiming any new revelation that's of God. The canon of scripture is closed. Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 12.32, Proverbs 30, verse 6, and Revelation 22.18 and 19 give us dire warnings not to add or take away from it. Believers need to know the word. They need to grow in maturity in it. And we need to follow sound doctrine and we need to guard these truths of scripture and make sure that they stay unadulterated by false teaching. And that's going to be more important than ever in the coming days. Absolutely. 
And that's a good place to end for today. Don't forget to check out our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com. And if you like what you hear, we would really appreciate you leaving a review on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Have a blessed day, everyone. 